Psalm 102 as we continue our studies through the Psalms. And the title this, this evening is God's Love is Eternal. God's Love is Eternal. Now this is a, a penitential psalm or a psalm of repentance. And it's also a, a messianic psalm. And we see that in verses 25 through 27. And we see it reflected in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. The author, we don't know who it is. Uh, He probably wrote it long after Jerusalem was destroyed. About the time that he thought Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 year captivity was about to be fulfilled. According to the title, the psalmist was afflicted. There was something wrong with him uh, health wise and he was faint. He was weak and he was burdened. That is, he had a burden to present what he was going through to the Lord. Uh, it says in verses 2 through 5, 2 and 5, he was groaning in distress. He was weeping over the ruins of Jerusalem, we see in verse 9. His opening prayer in verses 1 and 2, it, it, it kind of draws from several other of the other psalms. And it gives us an example of what it means to pray the word of God. You know, you're looking through the Psalms and de- seeing the different topics and subjects, praying, you know, the Bible, praying on those, uh, those, those topics and those, uh, again, subjects. This Psalm is an, has an unusual title. You know, in, in, the, in my Bible, it says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So the title, again, describes a person in distress, but it doesn't name who it is. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First, there's a cry to the Lord for deliverance in verses 1 and 2. Second, there's a description of the groaning brought about by guilt in verses 3 through 7. Third, there's a description of suffering that results from the laughter of enemies, verses 8 through 11. Fourth, there's a praise to the Lord who rises to answer in verses 12 through 17. Fifth, there's praise to the Lord who stoops to the needs of his people in verses 18 through 22. And lastly, a petition to the Lord to renew the strength of his servant in verses 23 through 28. The theme is the cure for distress. Because God is living and he's eternal and unchanging, we can trust him to help his people in this generation just like he helped people in past generations. Again, this is a prayer of someone that is overwhelmed with problems. And he's pouring them out to the Lord here. Again, this psalm is entitled, A Prayer of the Afflicted When He is Overwhelmed and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. Now, some commentators think that this psalm was written at the time of the Babylonian captivity. There are others that believe it's a psalm of David, but nobody knows for sure. It's like some of David's psalms as he starts the psalm with a request. So let's look at verse 1 and see the prayer of the afflicted. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. So the prayer of those who are afflicted, that prayer should be a personal one-on-one with the Lord. Not a complaint. You know, Lord, it's more like the psalmist is saying, Lord, can I talk to you about something? It's more like telling the Lord about how he feels, about what's going on in his life. And, and, you know, when we're struggling and, and whatever we're going through. But complaining to God is always wrong. 
and it dishonors the Lord. No godly person can ever put Uh, can ever be put in any circumstances of distress where he deserves the right to complain to God. Why? Because for true and righteous are his judgments. God does not make mistakes. God doesn't let anything slip through his fingers. You know, again, uh uh-oh is not in God's vocabulary. You know, it just doesn't happen. So again, that being the case, you know, why complain about what's going on in your life? Complaining is always wrong. So again, uh, it, it, we read in Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three: the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. So as I said, why complain about our life? When God is at the wheel of your life, when he's directing your life, you can be sure that, there will, that you will make it to the harbor safely. You'll make it to your destination safely. He doesn't promise you an easy trip. He doesn't promise you an easy road to go, but he does promise you you'll make it safely to your destination. Someone once said, if a man will choose God for his friend, he shall travel securely through a wilderness that has many beasts of prey in it. He shall pass safely through this world because because he only is safe that has his God for his guide. In verse four here, in verse four of Psalm 37, it says that we're called to delight in the Lord. In verse 23 of Psalm 37, we're told that he delights in us. And as we are delight, uh, his delight in verse 34, it says that we are to keep his way. In other words, the very steps are all our steps. The steps of a good man, a good woman are all ordered. The word ordered means set up. They're set up by God who delights in the goodness of the, uh, of the good man's way. And yet, the inference here is so distinctly to be drawn that the good man may fall. That he, and that his God and his guide may stand and watch and allow it to happen. Because it says that he may, he, you know, God will allow him to fall. We can also add to this to help uh, establish the principle in our hearts. That the child of God may fall and still be a child of God. And also to explain somewhat of the reason why this is part of our lot of life. You see, whether ordered or only permitted by God, all events in our lives are a step of the right way by which God leads them, you know, on that way. So this is the good man's assurance knowing that the possibility of the good man's fall is accompanied with the precious assurance that he will not be utterly cast down. Psalm, again, uh, 37, verse 23 and 24. So no godly man or woman, whoever keeps their godliness, ever wishes to complain because there's nothing to complain about. If God's will, if, if whatever I'm going through is God's will for me, you know what? It's the best place for me to be. If God wills me to be in, in whatever situation I'm in, then that's the best, best place to be. And where do I want to be? Where God wants me to be. It might be uncomfortable. It might be inconvenient. It might be a little painful. But for whatever reason, God says, "Good, Joe, this is good for you. You need to be here for now. So again, uh, the key to God's will in our life is submission. So many times we kick against the will of God. We complain against the will, about the will of God. We don't like the will of God. 
But if we submit to it knowing that, Lord, this is where you want me to be, you know what? It'll be easier to accept. Submitting to the infinitely wise and eternal love of God is totally necessary for godliness. Lord, your will be done. And then you know what? We need to carry it out. But the godly person, the godly person has total confidence in God. He may speak freely and totally about how he feels. God knows how we feel. And, you know, we can go to God and, and say, Lord, you know, can, can I talk to you about this? Can I tell you about how I'm feeling? We get a lot of relief in times in trouble by trusting in a trustworthy friend. And God allows us to freely pour out our hearts to him. Secondly, <clears throat> the prayer of the, of the afflicted should be a sign of faith and not of fear. And our faith should assure us of, first of all, God's attention. Secondly, of God's sympathy. Third, his ability to help. And fourth, God's wisdom in delaying getting involved. Now, this is one of the things that we don't really, you know, like. Is that many times in prayer, God delays in getting involved. He doesn't jump in immediately. You know, and and here we see the psalmist in, in, in the very first verse. He says, hear my prayer, O God, and let, me cry, let my cry come to you. And do not hide from your, uh, your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. And notice, in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Now, there are times when God does not answer our prayers speedily. He doesn't get involved right away. We read in Isaiah 30, 18. And, and you know, this is a great scripture to remember, you know, when God is not uh, you know, I, I jumped in and taken care of our situation right away. Isaiah thirty eighteen says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, why would God make us wait? When God waits, it might be because he has a better gift for you than the one you might be asking for. You know, we're always ready to settle for second best. And how many times do we tell our kids, well, just wait, just wait. I have something for it. Just wait. And, you know, it's, it's hard to wait. But many times, and especially with God, waiting is worth waiting for. And so again, when God waits, it's because maybe he has something better for me than, than what I'm even asking for. And you know, when God waits, it doesn't mean that he's denying our prayer. And, and when God waits, it doesn't mean that, that, that I'm defeated. But as it says in Psalm 31, 14, we need to put our times in his hands. Our time is in his hands. And we need to wait on the Lord. Again, fear would be a dishonor to our past deliverances. In other words, fearing today, you know, would, 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 would dishonor all the things that God had done for me in the past. Fear would also say that our circumstances are ruling our hearts. Fear many times takes over our faith. And we begin to do things and take action out of fear rather than out of faith. Because, because fear is ruling our hearts. Fear would also show doubt about God's power and about his promise. We begin to think, I don't know if God can handle this. I don't know if if this is, you know, too big for my God. So again, doubt uh, uh, causes us to to wonder about God's power and God's promise. You know, maybe he, he just this is something he can't do. We ask God to hear our prayer. 
because we know that's exactly what he's doing. We know he listens. Then in verses 2 through 5, we see the depression that comes with pain. Look at verse 2 through 5 now. He says, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. The point of this emotional sentiment here that's given in verse 4, he says, Lord, my heart is stricken and it's withered like grass. In other words, the psalmist feels so sick, according to verse 4, that he's lost his appetite. And you know what? Isn't that true? When we're sick and we're depressed, that the days just seem to drag by. They go so slowly. And we don't care about anything, not even our simplest needs like eating. When we're going through these difficult times, God is alone, alone is our comfort and our strength. The psalmist said in Psalm 62, 1 and 2, he says, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From Him comes my salvation or my deliverance. He only, notice this, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And then in Psalm 62, 5 through 8, My soul waits silently, silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. He only. So we say three times the psalmist speaks about God only being his, his deliverance, his rest. He said, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You see, the psalmist says three times, God only, God alone. Because you see, if you expect anything from anyone else, you're going to be disappointed. But you will never be disappointed with God. Even when we're too weak to fight, we can still lean on Him. And we're encouraged to lean on Him in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And you see, it's often when we recognize our weaknesses that God's greatest strength becomes available to us. Because you know what? God is attracted to weakness. God shows himself strong through our weaknesses. He's glorified in our weaknesses. Paul knows this. Paul showed us this. Paul had some kind of weakness. He called it a thorn in his flesh. It may have been malaria, epilepsy, some eye disease. We don't know. But whatever it was, it was a constant and weakening, unbearable problem to Paul. And sometimes it kept him from working. But whatever the illness was, it was a hindrance to his ministry. And he prayed, Lord, remove it. Lord, heal me. But God didn't. Paul was a very self-sufficient man, so this thorn must have really been hard for him to accept and to deal with. But you know what? It kept Paul humble. And you know, sometimes that's why God may not heal uh, some need in my life or, or um, just allow me to keep going through something because it will keep me on my knees. Because it will keep me coming to him and having fellowship with him. As it did Paul, it kept him humble. It reminded Paul that, you know what, Paul, that he needed to stay in constant contact with God. And you know what? 
Paul benefited from his thorn in the flesh as well as those who are around him. You know why? Because they saw God working in Paul. They saw God working through his life. And even though God didn't take away Paul's affliction, he did promise to show Paul his power through that affliction. And the fact that God's power is displayed in our weaknesses, man, that should encourage us. That should give us hope. Jesus told Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, if that's the case, Lord, then I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that your power may be seen through me. And since I know it's all for Christ's good, I'm quite content, Lord, with my weaknesses and with the insults I get from other people, the hardships that I go through, and the persecutions and the calamities. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And like Paul said in Romans 5, 8, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the call according to His purpose. Romans 5, 28. Then in verses 6 through 7, we see the loneliness of those who are hurting. Verses 6 through 7. The psalmist says, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. Now, the birds named in these verses are pictures. They're images of loneliness and desolation. And sometimes we might need to be alone. And sometimes God puts us in places and situations where we have to be alone. And being alone may comfort us. But we have to be careful not to reject those who reach out to us. Don't reject help in conversation. And I, I knew a, a, a guy that, that was a friend of mine. I, I, known him, I knew him for years. And, and I heard he, he, he was sick and he was in the hospital. And, you know, I wanted to go see him. I wanted to witness him and pray to him because I prayed with him. I, I knew he wasn't a believer. And I called, but his wife told me, you know, he doesn't want anybody to see him. He doesn't want anybody to visit him. And, and, and you know, for whatever reason. But again, uh, we shouldn't, again, uh, reject those who want to come and help. And, and, you know, if they can, in, in that conversation, many times it's needed. Suffering silently and alone. Hey, it's neither Christian and it's not very healthy. Instead, you know, we should kindly accept the support and the help from family and friends. So those who, who want to come in and share and visit with us. Because, because that person that is bedridden is suffering because they're bedridden and, and has been removed from those things that they enjoy in life. You know, it can make them feel alone. It can make them feel their weakness and their helplessness. It can make them feel lonely. And there are many long hours when they really are alone. And there are long sleepless hours in the night when they seem all alone and that they must walk alone and they must go through, as David said, that valley of the shadow of death. But here in verses six through seven, the psalmist uses three birds that were around in his day that were brought to be or thought to be images of loneliness. The pelican he names here. The pelican was the bird of the swamp. The owl was the night bird of, of, of desolate places and the sparrow was a sad bird when it lost its mate so one describes again here, here the psalmist describes the peloton pelican as sitting around for hours or sitting still for hours 
It would sit motionless. It wouldn't move after it had, you know, it stuffed itself with food. Its, its head would sink down in its shoulders and its bill would rest in its breast. There's a bird in Western Asia, sometimes called a sparrow. And that, that you know, and, and only one time during the year would that bird, it would never hang out with other birds. That sparrow would never hang out with other birds. Only one time during the year, it would be with its mate. And even then, it often was seen alone sitting on housetops. Many times the world says, hey, and sometimes Christians say it too. God has forsaken him. And many times like that, we feel that way when we're going through something and we feel alone. And our hearts say the same thing. Lord, why are you so far from me? It's a common feeling. Even Jesus When he went through his pain on the cross and his suffering, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was then and all God's children are and were and are wrong because God never forsakes his people. Now, remember, when I say Jesus was wrong, it wasn't that he was wrong in the sense that he, he, he was wrong, you know, literally. It's that he had that sense and we're wrong, though, when we have that sense, because God, Jesus knew he wasn't alone. I'll share the scripture with you in a minute. But, you know, they're never alone like they think he does. And remember, Jesus was 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 in submission to the father. And he was he was he, you know, he 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 was 100 percent man is 100 percent God. And, and in that 100 percent man upon the cross, he felt forsaken by the father. But Jesus answered that. He said in John 16, 31 through 32, do you now believe indeed the hour is coming? Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. He knew that everybody else would leave him alone. He says, and yet I am not alone because the father was with me. In Job 23, 8 through 10, he had that sense of being forsaken by God. He said, look, I go forward, but he's not there and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I can't behold him. When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. But, and here's the important thing, he knows the way that I take. I may not see God at work in my life. I may not see him doing anything. I may not see or, or sense any relief. But you know what? God is right there. He knows exactly where I am. He knows exactly what I need. And he's taking care of business. Verses 8 through 11 speaks about uh, the psalmist's sufferings. Uh, His sufferings aren't explained. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, my enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I will and I wither away like grass. He, he's he, no, nobody. He doesn't know why he's suffering. It's like Job. It, he, it hasn't have, it, it hasn't been explained to him why he's suffering. And he says, Lord, he says, those who deride me or those who mock me, they swear an oath against me. What he's saying here is they that those that are angry with me, they use my name for a curse. And he says here, I eat ashes with my food. Tears fall into my drink. No reason is given for God's righteous anger. But the psalmist feels that he is the target of God's anger. Notice verse 10 again. It says he's lifted up. He's lifted me up only to be cast away again. 
This shows us that the psalmist is aware of some sin on his part. But nowhere in the psalm does he tell us what the sin specifically is or confesses it. Which suggests that even though he's aware that, that nothing that has, that's happened to him is undeserved, because we all sin and deserve his wrath, but he's still not sure what he's done to deserve God's wrath or why God is afflicting him in this way. In other words, his experience is just like Job's. Job wasn't sinless, but he couldn't understand why he was being singled out by God for, such that, for that particular kind of intense suffering. All the psalmist can say is that, you know what, when it's all said and done, it's God who is responsible for it. And you know what? He leaves it at that. Look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Another place, again, as I've mentioned all along, to underline the name, the word name. Here, now we see the psalmist's turning point in the psalm. Here's where everything changes. In verses 1 through 11, the psalmist described his weak and failing health. He's saying, my life, Passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. He says, I'm withering away like grass. But he, has a, he, but he has a God who's not at all like that. His God is eternal. He's withering away. His days are short, but his God is eternal. His God is omnipotent. His God is unchanging, trustworthy, and loving. Looking at what he said in verse 12, he could have bitterly said, you know what? Hey, I, I, you know, and, and he's like a lot of people say, here I am. I'm all alone. Nobody cares. I'm wasting away and I'm going to die soon if you don't help me, God. Don't you care about me? Why are you treating me like this? Or the words could be said in a demanding way. God, you're all powerful and you can heal me if you want to. And it is my right to be healed. And in the name of Jesus, I claim and demand to be healed. But we don't hear him say that. He simply turns to God when everything else hasn't produced the desired results and this is a lesson that christians need to learn today claiming naming and claiming a right to be healthy or anything else hey it might look spiritual and it might sound spiritual in the name of jesus i demand it good luck it might be described as a proof of strong faith by faith healers who sound like that but it's not spiritual nor is it biblical at all what it really proves is worldliness or worldly thinking in the church. It's also a lack of knowledge of the word of God. Look at the way people think about health today compared to the attitude of the psalmist here. We're so occupied with health issues, and, and we should be. And we're, but but we're, we're, I think many times we're, we're, over, we're over-occupied more than with our health of spirituality with God because we're preoccupied with ourselves. I mean, look at all the, the diet fads that we see on TV or on the news and, and many of them seem to contradict each other. Oh, you can eat this or you can't eat that and they all have different opinions. And these people are making millions on their pills and their creams and their exercise diets and, and everything else. There are gyms everywhere. And a lot of people are more disciplined and faithful to go to the gym than they are going to church. And Paul said, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. 
We're preoccupied with health because we're preoccupied with ourselves. You know, you've heard it said before, but take a picture with a group of people and listen to the comments. Look at me. That's the first one they look at. I, look, I can't believe I wore that. I need to lose weight. I look so old. I look ugly. And on and on it goes. You know, somehow we think we should live forever or longer than we think. But the Bible says there's an appointed time for man to die. I don't know when my time comes. But I know I'm not going to live a day longer or shorter than what God has appointed for me. And that's, and that's what we need to understand and we need to accept. So when this church starts demanding healing, and, and there are many that do, it's the evidence of the worldly thinking that's gotten into the church. And I've heard it before, oh no, you shouldn't be sick. Oh no, you shouldn't say that you're sick because you're going to get sick. You know, that's positive confession. God doesn't want you to be sick. Well, where in the scriptures can you show me that? Or you don't have enough faith or you wouldn't be sick. Or you have sin in your life and that's why you're sick. Now, in saying all of this, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of our health and that it's wrong to go to gyms. I use the example that sometimes we're more faithful to go to the gym than we are to church. Gyms are okay. I'm not saying they're not. Because I'm sometimes say, oh, well, you know, Joe don't want anybody. No, uh, you know, it's talking about our faithfulness and our commitment to God. That should be first and foremost. But we need to take care of our bodies. They're the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is where God dwells. This is what God uses to serve him in ministry. God can heal and he does heal. But not as often as so-called faith healers say they do. And definitely not on demand. I, you know, it's pretty bold to come and demand something from God. Now, when we're sick, like I said, we can ask God to heal us. And we should ask God to heal us. But again, perfect health isn't a right. Bad health is often just as much a gift from God as good health is. Look at Job and Paul. It was really, you know what, we can thank God that Job suffered like he did, not because he suffered, but because he had that experience. Because look at that, when you study that book, we learn so much from that book. So much from Job's experience of suffering. Paul's another one. You know, when, when, when you hear these guys say, well, no, you should never be sick. And, and you know, you know what, what, what happened to Paul? Well, Paul didn't have enough faith, really. One of the most faithful men in the Bible. But we hear that many times. You know, well, you, you're sick because you don't have enough faith. Well, I guess Paul didn't know that. So again, but, but notice now the difference in the author here at this point. He's praying He's putting his failing health before God now. He's accepting. He's knowing that, it, that, it, that it's from God. His words are spiritual. Why? Because his words are focused on God. He's focused on God and he's expressing total confidence now in the almighty God. In other words, the psalmist has reminded himself that, you know what? God is sovereign. He's the ruler over my life. So whatever happens in my life, it's no accident. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. There are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, the psalmist is saying, you know what? Whatever is happening to me, it's been given to me by God. For some reason, I don't know or understand. 
So what he's saying here is no matter what happens to me, I'm going to anchor myself in God's eternity and I'm going to go on from there. Verses 13 through 22 now speak of the future glory of Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. You will arise and have mercy on Zion or Jerusalem for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth, your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from the heaven the Lord viewed the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Verse, first part of verse 13 says, The Lord will arise and have mercy on Zion or Jerusalem. There's the set time, it says in the second part of verse 13. The set time is usually thought to be the end of the predicted 70 years of captivity in Babylon, based on Jeremiah 29.10 and Daniel 9.2. It says, the psalmist says, Even the stones in verse 14 and the dust of Zion, they were precious to God's people. The rebuilding of Jerusalem would, be, would, would give the heathen, that's what the word nations means there, the heathens. The building of Jerusalem would give the nation, the heathens, reason to fear the name of the Lord. The full range of the psalmist's vision, he says, all the kings of the earth recognizing the glory of the Lord. This would be the fulfillment of God's purpose in Christ. But the building of Zion, verse 16 said, it would glorify the Lord. And it would be his answer to the prayer of the destitute people of Israel, according to verse 17. This will be written for the generation to come, the writer says in verse 18. Verse 18 is better said, let this be recorded for future ages. And one of the great incentives to faith is to look at the full, all the fulfilled prophecy. Looking back as you read the scripture and, and, and look at all the prophecies that have been fulfilled up to this point. That's a great incentive for our faith for the future prophecy fulfillments. Now, if Jesus coming again in the great tribulation period, which, which we're not going to appear, and all the things that, that, that are still yet future, if he's fulfilled all the past prophecies or those that have been fulfilled up to this point, why wouldn't he not fulfill the ones yet future? That's the incentive to hang on. The incentive of faith is to look at all the fulfilled prophecy up to this point. He says in verse 18 that a people yet to be created or a people yet to be born may praise the Lord. The reason is that God looked down from, the, from his sanctuary, according to verse 19, that is from heaven, to bring this expected deliverance. The, the, the words appointed death in verse 20 is literally sons of death. It means doomed to death. Those doomed to death. The end times note here is mentioned again in verse 22. It says when the people are gathered together and the kingdom we to serve the Lord. Now verses 23 through 28 we see the temporary and the permanent. Verses 23 through 28. He goes on to say he weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said oh my God do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generation. 
Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, that is, when, he's saying, when he says they will perish, he's talking about the heavens and the work of, of his hands. They will perish, but you, God, will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like garment. And he's talking about the heavens and the work of the heavens. Those will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you, God, are the same and your years, your years will have no end. Again, because he's eternal. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. In some way, these last verses are a repeat of the psalmist's sentiment. And once again, he turns to anchor himself to the Lord. He's comparing the things of this world with his God. They're going to pass away. But God is eternal. He will never, he will never pass away. So again, uh, the difference compared to before is the emphasis of the psalmist putting God's, uh, put, making God uh, eternal. He talks about God being present from the beginning when he laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens here in verse 25. And he talks about him still being present at the end. Even though creation will pass away like an old garment, he will still be there. Speaking of God being eternal is a contrast with his creation. This was an expression of the psalmist's confidence in the Lord. Lord, I know everything in this world, everything's going to pass away, but you are still going to be there for me. The heavens and the earth will pass away. They're going to wear out like old clothes. But you, Lord, you're unchanging. And your years are eternal and they will never end. He says in verse 27, we're going to perish. But you're the same. And your years will have no end. When the psalmist wrote these words, he was thinking of God the Father. As he has been throughout the whole psalm. And verses 25 through 27 are applied to Jesus Christ. You can read the same words in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So the psalmist was addressing the eternal Lord Jesus Christ and the writer of Hebrews is identifying Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 as the eternal one, the creator and the sustainer of the world. Again, this is a strong statement for the deity of Jesus Christ because he is God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is also the one through whom Jerusalem is restored. And the Gentile nations are saved. And future generations of the church will be raised up and preserved. And those who have been in bondage to sin, delivered from their spiritual bondage because of Christ. So anchored in eternity means anchored in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 6, 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. You see, our hope is secure and it's permanent as we're anchored in Christ. Just like a ship's anchor holds it firmly to the ocean floor, to that person who truly and sincerely comes seeking God and believes God's promises, God will unconditionally accept him. When you ask God with openness, honesty, and sincerity to save you from your sins, God will do it. And this truth should encourage you and assure you and give you confidence. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you that you are eternal, that you are unchanging, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and that, Father, you will never change. Father, we're so thankful because things change every single day. People change every day, God. We change. But, Lord, we're so thankful that we have an anchor, Father, in you, Lord. And that, Father, we can count on that. And, Father, we can be assured of that. So, Lord, may we just uh, rest assured, God, in who you are. And maybe you're here tonight and, and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. But God has spoken to you through his word. And through this spirit, he's, he's, he's made the scriptures come alive and he's, he's made Christ alive to you. And he's revealed to you your need for the forgiveness of sins. He's revealed to you the need of a Savior and of Lord. And that is Christ. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship right now. And this is your time to meditate upon these things. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles to the steps up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.